Every advisor is being asked to do more with less. Fixed income ETFs just allow advisors to focus on the areas of the business that allow them to get the most alpha. And if that's from an investment perspective or even from a client relationship perspective. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Hello, and thanks for joining us today. As we cross the halfway mark of 2020, Mark Reyes sits down with Chris Heeks and Matt Montemuro to take a look back at the performance of stocks, bonds, and ETFs in the first six months of this year. They also look ahead with new ideas to manage the risk-reward trade-offs of an economy in peril. From BMO's smart beta suite to its precise fixed income exposures, advisors will discover plug-and-play strategies that can simplify their practice, enhance investment outcomes, and deliver peace of mind. Before we hear from our experts, Please consider subscribing to the BMO ETFs podcast on your preferred podcast player and sharing it with your friends and colleagues. Enjoy the episode. Hello, I'm your host, Mark Rays. I'm the head of product for BMO GAN Canada, covering mutual funds and ETFs. We're joined today by two PMs from our ETF portfolio management group, Chris Heeks, who focuses on our equity ETFs as well as derivative strategies and Matt Montemuro, who focuses on our fixed income ETS. So thanks, Chris and Matt, for joining us today. Thanks. Morning, Mark. Morning. Let's jump right into things here, uh, as we're now through month end, and in fact, through half the year. So a great opportunity to look back at year-to-date, both, I think, from a performance perspective, but as well from an ETF flow perspective. ETFs in Canada have already attracted over $22 billion in year-to-date flows, so a great start to the year. And, you know, if you consider everything that's happened, COVID-19, the difficult reopening, yet the run-up in markets despite these obvious risks out there, and other things that are going on, of course, trade tensions, racial tensions, feels like we've been through a few years, not just six months. So how would you attribute this massive success of ETFs year-to-date? Chris, maybe you can touch on equity ETFs and then Matt jump in on the fixed income side. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And yeah, for sure, Canada Day already feels to me like it was at least two weeks ago and it was only a week ago today. So, yeah, I mean, at a high level, I think, you know, it's, it's been, a re- as you say, a record year for ETFs. You know, I go back to the kind of those key advantages for ETFs, which is, you know, just that ability to access exposures and to do so, you know, very effectively and at a cost-efficient pricing. Um, I think one thing we talked on the call a few weeks ago was, you know, when volatility increases, it tends to lead to an increase in ETF trading. So certainly no one on, on the ETF team wanted this kind of volatility that we've had this year. But but we do notice this trend kind of happen, you know, again and again. It's really been prevalent since uh, like the 2008 crisis. When volatility goes up, it tends to lead to an increase in ETF trading. On the equity side, you know, the last couple of months have been, you know, some some pretty good months after after obviously that sharp sell-off. You know, we do see investors gravitating to kind of kind of all spectrums of, of our equity. Certainly beta has been a you know a popular play. You know, I think a lot of investors have seek to get more exposure to equity beta after the sell-off. And you know, we have the tools to do that in 
in all the different regions of the world. And, and, you know, again, the nice thing with ETF is to take advantage of, you know, intraday opportunities, you know, if the market's down in the morning, might incentivize you to buy and have that certainty of pricing. So we've seen definitely a lot of beta. And, you know, as well, going to our, our smart beta suite, you know, again, having those tools to tilt to the market, like quality, you know, which we, we've talked and we will talk on today, I'm sure, quality or mobile, you know, these smart beta exposures that allow you to tilt around the market index have been popular. And last but not least, you know, cover calls always, you know, and VPay, the premium yield, I should mention as well, our innovative option overlay strategies, you know, that ability to earn tax-efficient income in volatile markets has been very effective. So, you know, kind of across the board seeing, you know, a lot of interest in equities and, and flows to kind of all dimensions of the equity side. I can jump in on the fixed income side. Much of the same that Chris had highlighted, we, we see on the fixed income side. Uh, we saw ETFs act as a liquidity vehicle during periods of exchange stress, specifically in March. Uh, as the underlying market went no bid, we saw ETFs provide the true clearing level uh, for these assets and an actual transactable level for uh, investors' level of risk. So that was a very important finding that we saw, again, from a period of extreme stress where where ETFs uh, stepped up uh, as a key uh, investment vehicle for for investors. This was extremely important uh, during March, specifically as that's when kind of the big uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, shock happened. But we've seen retail and institutional investors alike use ETFs as the true proxy now for fixed income pricing and liquidity uh, during periods of stress. And we we expect that to continue uh, going forward as we have a more normalized market. As well, uh, as markets started to turn, uh, ETFs were used more frequently and used as a way for investors to add targeted beta exposure quickly and efficiently. Block trade incidents in fixed income ETFs has increased significantly during this period as many institutions have opted to use the ETF uh, vehicle for its efficiency and transparency versus the underlying asset class, uh, in this case, bonds. Uh, As well, uh, the ETF fixed income landscape in Canada, uh, specifically our suite at BMO, uh, allows investors to pick exactly where they want to be on the yield uh, and credit curve, uh, enabling them to react quickly to changing market dynamics, you know, also intraday, as, as Chris had mentioned, uh, as well as provide longer-term protection uh, in the way of targeting specific credit exposures, uh, as we have ETFs that target specifically triple B-rated or uh, A and above-rated uh, bonds. So you can pick and choose exactly where you want to be on the credit yield curve, as well as the quality spectrum, uh, protecting your clients from the volatility that is happening in the markets. Having an extensive lineup of fixed income products uh, available has just improved uh, the toolkit, basically, of every investor. Uh, And during periods of extreme stress, like we saw uh, for the first half of 2020, you know, we need as many tools as we can get. So that's why ETFs have have really stepped up during this period, and we we see flows uh, increase significantly, as Mark had mentioned. All right, great. Thanks to both of you. And I I think it's quite interesting when we look back at this volatility and these periods of stress, and we, we see ETFs as a percentage of the dollar volume trade on the exchange, you know, essentially double during these periods of, of high trading volume. So that's, that's quite interesting. And then when you think about fixed income, all those benefits of ETFs that apply to equities, you know, they apply more so to fixed income uh, when you talk about a less transparent OTC asset class. 
And Matt, your point about institutional, that's, that's a great validation point for all the advisors listening in that you know, more and more institutions are turning to ETFs as, as ways to reposition those portfolios. So great points all around. Thank you. Let's move on to the next thing that we certainly noticed with, with this year to date. The theme for launches this year has, has been ESG or responsible investing. And we've, we've seen BMO certainly lead the way in this space. What do you make of this run of ESG launches? Is the field already starting to get crowded? And as well, how have they performed across the market turbulence? Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I think, you know, this is really, you know, the ESG is for real this time. You know, it's, it is becoming a, a somewhat of a crowded field, but, you know, I think it's, it's something that every firm now has to think about and whether they have products that are targeted specifically to ESG or just having policies and procedures and how they manage money to ensure that, you know, they have thoughts and towards, um, you know, kind of the uh, rewarding companies with positive factors. So I think it's for real this time. You know, I think it's all it's been talked about for many years. We haven't really seen the dollars perhaps flow into the space in the past, uh, but now we are starting to see the dollars. And, you know, I'd say, you know, kind of importantly, it's, they're, they're coming from both the public side, you know, governments are, 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 are many governments are rewarding kind of ESG more ESG-sensitive uh, investments, and, you know, private investment dollars are also flowing into the space. I think it's, it's interesting, whereas, you know, ESG kind of had this perception of hurting returns in the past, you know, I think that's going to go away. I think there's going to be a new factor premium associated with ESG that's going to be a positive premium. And, you know, an example could be, say, um, renewable utilities. Renewable utilities are vastly outperforming kind of traditional utilities or coal-based utilities. And, you know, that's just, that's just one example of, of how, you know, markets, kind of the directionality of that little subsection of the market has changed. So I think going forward, there's going to be a positive factor premium. Uh, we've definitely seen that the last year or so, that ESG has really started to turn the table. I think it's, it's early to say, you know, for sure going forward, it's going to have a positive benefit performance-wise. But I think it's, it's definitely the indications are leading that way. So, you know, so BMO is, um, you know, we've, we do seem to be a leader in this space. Um, you know, we've got quite a, quite a deep ESG and responsible investing team already. You know, I think we've, we've launched certainly, you know, a broad suite of products, you know, in all aspects of the region. And, and in, we're even integrating, you know, ESG into some, some of our kind of more traditional products like cover calls. And for example, ZWG, the Global High Dividend Cover Call pretty great uh, performance for a dividend strategy this year. It's, um, you know, we're kind of right in line with the broad market, giving some downside protections, giving you a lot of income. You know, it's got an ESG overlay embedded into it. Uh, another one I really like is the ZEFG, so the balanced solution, which is has, you know, ESG equity exposure and ESG bond exposure wrapped up into a one-ticket balanced exposure solution. And I think that's a really effective vehicle for someone looking for a for a one-click ESG balanced portfolio touch. So I think it's an interesting field. I think there's going to be a lot more development. I don't think it's going away this time. Like I said, I think the performance trajectory looks good going forward. So it's a segment of the market that, um, that it pays to pay attention to now. Yeah, thanks, Chris. You certainly see that at the company level as well when there's, a, when there's an ESG incident, environmental governance, anything else. You, know, you certainly see a lot more price activity on a, on a stock than you, than you had in the past where perhaps you would have looked past that and focused on future uh, income. Now, June saw a resurgence of flows into Canadian equity 
ETFs. This is a bit of a reversal from earlier in the year. Is that a sign of a continued belief in this rally that we're in? Or is it more of a recognition of the drag in Canada, the performance differential this year compared to the U.S.? In your client conversations, why do you see clients stepping into this trade right now? Thank you. Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of both. I think to, to some extent, you know, clients are looking at assets that have underperformed or, you know, have not, you know, recovered to the full extent um, as we've kind of been navigating this COVID crisis and, and Canada would come up on that screen. Even international equities had a pretty good month as well. So, you know, I do think that, you know, a lot of investors are looking at the U.S. and, and, and somewhat questioning perhaps where that next big growth is going to come. Um, you know, certainly I don't think any investors are, are turning away from the U.S. completely, but just looking to round out their exposure. You know, I think in the U.S. you've got some risks that certainly starting to come up on the rise. And, you know, they have coronavirus, they're having difficulty with that. You know, the civil problems and fractures are having, you know, in, in some of the communities there. Elections are on the horizon. So there's a lot of potential volatility. Um, Canada and international, I think, is a place where investors can kind of continue to seek diversification. You know, one area of Canada that, that has seen a lot of flows is financial. And, you know, as a reminder, banks are still yielding about 5.4%. And, and we've talked about financials quite a bit, but we continue to like ZEB and ZWB to get, you know, that uncovered bank exposure and then the covered call bank exposure as well. A lot of investment dollars going there. Um, you know, I do want to talk about international too, and maybe we can shelf it for, for a later conversation, but you know, a lot of flows have been going to international and, you know, EC is, is doing okay, but one that's really kind of a bit of a sleeper right now is emerging markets. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons to really like emerging markets, you know, the, the higher GDP growth rates, you know, those countries, a lot of them are still in transition in terms of bringing on a middle class and building infrastructure. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons to like emerging markets from a long-term point of view. And we're starting to see flows go into that. I think it can add something, you know, you, you don't want to obviously have a, a massive weight in EM, but a little bit, I think, deserves a place in most people's portfolios. So um, again, you know, China kind of quietly is up 10% this year, you know, very, very quiet, up 10%. And they, you know, to the contrast of the US, you know, have managed coronavirus seemingly much more effectively. You know, obviously there's political issues in China, but they seem to, my view, they seem it seems to be somewhat more stable than well, I don't know. I guess Hong Kong is a problem, but but certainly the U.S. is, is, is highly fractured right now and, and polarized, and I, I think perhaps more so than China. So China's kind of quietly put together a good year. So I think investors are looking for, you know, exposure in addition to the U.S. We love the quality trade in the U.S., but still adding some additional exposures in Canada or perhaps in an international, including emerging markets, I think does make sense. I suspect, you know, we, we might see a little bit more of that as we move through the summer, you know, interest and exposures besides the U.S., particularly with kind of these, you know, the election in particular, but other problems that the U.S. is kind of having now. You know, I, I think investors will continue to seek to diversify, which I think makes sense. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, certainly seeing uh, interest in a more diversified portfolio right now, uh, COVID-19 being, you know, front and center of everyone's mind and seeing what's going on in a number of U.S. states, including Florida, Texas, Arizona. It's, uh, it's pretty scary out there, so that trade does make some sense. So, Matt, let's turn back to fixed income. June saw significant inflows in the government bond ETFs, and you know, we always get questions from advisors when we see flows into these types of ETFs where advisors 
you know, by and large, buy a lot of bonds directly and have more success sourcing and pricing government bonds compared to corporates. So if you would look at these ETFs, what would you attribute the flows and success of the, the government bond ETFs to? Thanks. So the way I look at it is, is ETFs continue to provide investors with a diversified exposure in, in a single trade point. And whether it's government bonds uh, or corporate bonds, uh, we continue to see uh, increasing widespread adoption uh, just due to the efficiency of the ETF vehicle uh, itself. Uh, while the cost benefits, like you mentioned, of purchasing a government bond ETF uh, versus the underlying bonds is, is less pronounced than that uh, of corporates, um, at a minimum, from a, from a holding and trading perspective, the costs uh, remain relatively equal. So you may not have the benefit, but you're no worse off with the ETF vehicle. But with the ETF, you're actually taking advantage of several other aspects that are beneficial from a portfolio construction um, perspective, as well as a, an efficiency perspective. The benefits come from the efficiency of the ETF uh, in allowing advisors to basically purchase purchase a diversified exposure uh, within a single trade. Uh, no longer do advisors have to worry about things like uh, laddering their portfolio, maturities, rolling up the curve to maintain a targeted uh, or, or stable duration. All of these are done within the ETF, again, in one single trade point. So you're taking several different decisions that, that are ongoing and substituting that for a single decision which I think in, in this uh, in the climate we're at where, where we're in, where there's so many different data points that, uh, points that we're trying to assess, making your investment process more efficient is definitely becoming a priority to a lot of investors. This is uh, why we've seen a significant flows into many of our government bond ETFs uh, this year. So that's ZFS, ZFM, ZFL. Uh, ZGB is one that we've seen significant flows in May and May and June, uh, and these are both coming from retail and institutional uh, investors. So you, you see the block size of these these ETFs has increased significantly over the last six months and six months to a year, uh, as even institutional investors who you think have just as much of an ability to source the bonds see the benefits of, and, and from an efficiency standpoint and the ability to switch in between short, mid, and long bonds in a single trade point, making it just easy aspect to implement within their investment process. Every advisor is being asked to do more with less, especially with working from home and, and trying to figure out and, and navigate this kind of volatile climate we're in. Uh, fixed income ETFs just allow advisors to focus on the areas of the business that uh, allow them to get the most alpha. And if that's from an investment perspective or even from a client relationship perspective. So I, I think a lot of the conversations that we're having, both institutionally and retail, is just simplifying the process and getting a diversified exposure with a single trade rather than having to manage uh, several bonds or several different exposures and constantly rebalance those to, to ensure that you're having stability within your uh, greater portfolio. So I think that's the main reason why we've seen uh, this growth and development in government bond ETFs. And it, and it definitely has been a uh, significant year for inflows due to the flight to quality trade, but also because uh, I think more and more investors are using the ETF vehicle uh, for its advantages to just simplify their uh, investment process and overall their lives. Great. Thanks for that, Matt. 
You're listening to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, we encourage you to tune in to our deep dive series, where we take you under the hood of the BMO GAM product suite. Most recently, we take a deep dive into the BMO Canadian MBS Index ETF, ticker ZMBS, a traditionally institutional offering for defensive income in the current environment. For more information, please see the episode notes below. Now back to Mark Race, Chris Heeks, and Chris McKaney. Just one more question for me before we go to the lines. Chris, last one for you. Our theme of defensive growth has certainly played well with quality ETFs, but we've seen a bit of a underperformance comparatively to quality with the low-vol ETFs. What benefits do you see to a continued exposure to low volatility You know, in light of how markets have been moving up so so quickly over the last couple of months. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I think it's, uh, you know, the low ball is a kind of a don't forget about me type of exposure right now. I mean, given the, the rally we've had the past three months, uh, luckily for us, yeah, the quality call has worked out exceptionally um, and continues to do so. It's up about 8% in the U.S. this year, about 5% better than the S&P. So that gave us some, uh, some outperformance there to kind of buffer a little bit of uh, underperformance with the low ball, which is, you know, which, which did quite well through the, the first part of the year and in, in the sell-off as well, but has lagged somewhat on the upside. So, you know, when I think about what, what the role of low ball is going to play, particularly in the U.S., but also in Canada and Europe, is, you know, protection against, you know, the second wave of a coronavirus. You know, I think we are, you know, globally, we're, we're, we're actually, you know, we're, we've, we've re-accelerated. And I think, um, you know, the, the World Health Organization is starting to get more concerned Certainly, the U.S. has been a part of that. So, lowball again. I mean, these are these are portfolios that are designed to perform well, particularly in times of market stress. So, should we see these kind of problems accelerate further or spill over into you know to Canada, hopefully not, or, or other regions? That's what lowball is really there for. You know, in Canada, I think lowball is really there to give you that long-term market growth while underweighting cyclical areas that aren't outperforming. You know, energy had a nice bounce back at the initial part of the rally, but you know, since has kind of has kind of lagged back off. So, lowball um, in Canada, I think, you know, for me, is still a, is still a default exposure, with perhaps supplementing with a, a little bit of extra in, the, in the, maybe the dividend category to get access to financials and um, and energy companies that are that are stable and solid and paying dividends. But yeah, I'm now I'm starting to tangent off into dividends. But but yeah, overall, lowball is still there to provide a um, you know, a defensive tilt, you know, it's going to be a hedge against that quality or more growth uh, focused aspects of your portfolio. And I think, you know, I think still given we're not out of the woods, I think it still pays, plays a role in the portfolio. You know, I'd, and I also, I'd action that in Europe as well, you know, where we're still seeing the benefits of quality and low ball, you know, having that defensive growth outlook, I think is still the baseline kind of core positioning right now. Perhaps we've leaned more, you know, we've talked about maybe not being 50-50, perhaps leaning a little more into quality. You know, makes sense, but still having some low ball, I think, on the book makes sense as well to hedge against those uh, adverse outcomes. Thanks, Chris. I'd like at this point to check on the line and see if there's any questions you have for either Chris or Matt. Hey, guys, it's John here. Uh, thanks for taking my question. Uh, are you able to give us a quick overview of your low ball ETF rebalances? Uh, just at the sector level is fine. Thanks. Uh, for sure. Thanks, John. Um, so, you know, our low ball 
You know, I, I think they're pretty well constructed. Um, I, you know, obviously I'm, I'm somewhat biased, but, you know, we saw some competitors have a lot of turnover in their low volatility strategies. And, and usually that comes from using short kind of data windows to, to measure the metric of low vol. So if you're using a one-year standard deviation, you know, one-year standard deviation after kind of the markets we had in the last few months can, can be all over the place. And we saw that reflected back into the turnover of the strategies, you know, in excess of 50%. You know, I, our, our strategies are, you know, they, we use a five-year beta, first of all. It's a much more stable metric. You know, it also performs much better. And you look at back testing and you look at the live performance of five-year beta, five-year metric. You know, all the back tests we looked at using that longer metric makes made sense from a performance point of view. You know, and the nice side benefit of that is, you know, five-year metric is going to lead to less turnover. So, you know, overall, our low balls were kind of in the 5 to 10% turnover range. Um, we don't seek to make additions or deletions in June, so we'll, we'll redo the portfolio a bit more in, in December, but even still, pretty consistent portfolio. So, um, you know, there's not, a, there's not a ton to talk about, you know, from a sector point of view. Again, it's like turnovers in that 5 to 10% range. We did see some sectors like utilities that were always major, you know, components of mobile become a little, more, little bit more volatile. So we had a little bit of a reduction in utilities, but not, not a substantial one. So yeah, so again, uh, you know, we're we're in, we're in pretty good shape here. You know, the TSX, you know, if we're talking Canada, you know, obviously Shopify's had a tremendous year. You know, and, and if anyone's wondering about Shopify, it still is not a low ball, a low ball stock in our mind. So we're going to continue to sit out on that one until until you know such time that um, you know it really stables down from a volatility point of view. Our portfolio is pretty much intact across across the portfolios, and we're just going to kind of keep driving on. We think it's a good strategy. It's, it's a consistent portfolio, and it's it's going to do what it what it's supposed to do when uh, the time comes. And until then, it's going to give you a good good kind of source of growth as well. Perfect. Thank you. Hi there, uh, it's Esther on the line. Uh, I have a question in regards to uh, rebalancing activities uh, in the ETF, such as your dividend and uh, cover calls. Also, if there's any major major uh, changes, if you can comment, please. Thank you. Uh, yeah, nothing major which might come as a surprise. I mean, certainly there's been a little higher turnover in the dividend and the high dividend cover calls than usual, you know, mostly driven by, if people aren't familiar, we our screens require a company to have positive or flat dividend growth over three years. So we have, you know, obviously seen some more companies cut their dividends this year. I wouldn't characterize it as a significant major impact to the funds. You know, there's still across all the regions, there's, there's still lots of really good high caliber candidates to to include in the portfolio. So, you know, whereas we saw in Canada, you know, a few energy names cut, a couple of couple energy names, you know, globally kind of discretionary was the sector that was picked on the most, like consumer discretionaries. And you know, you can go to the US and look like a company like Carnival or uh, you know, BMW in Europe, some of these companies that rely on consumer spending and consumer activity have cut their dividend. We've removed those. Uh, but there's still a lot of good candidates to add in the portfolio. Um, you know, in the U.S., for example, you know, U.S. banks are yielding 4% now, which is pretty historic and, you know, attractive valuation. We did increase weight there. You know, Canada, again, we're still, you know, the financials are, are a backbone of that fund. So turnover was a little higher, but, but overall, there's still a lot of really good, um, really good companies. Uh, we, we did make a bit of an effort to, you know, where we added new companies to to add larger companies, you know, so bigger uh, companies. We think that, you know, that will 
be a good tilt to have as we kind of navigate, you know, what's still a bit of an uncertain, you know, certainly an uncertain environment. So, so skewed a bit towards larger kind of more blue chip companies with the additions. And, um, you know, we think, we think the, you know, the outlook for dividends and high dividend cover calls is good going forward. Um, they were, some dividend strategies were, you know, certainly, you know, challenged with the COVID drawdown. Um, but there's a lot of good value there. And I think it's, it, you know, the value will, you know, value's been very, very beaten down, obviously, but I think the value will, in some of these areas like financial, certainly will, will come to fruition. It's just kind of a matter of time to, to navigate the environment. So we're pretty happy with the portfolios. And yeah, again, there's, there's no shortage of still really high caliber, strong dividend yields out there. Right, thanks, Chris. Any further questions? Again? Maybe I'll have the question for Matt, uh, Mark, just to get him involved. Um, you know, there's been a lot of fixed, there's been a lot of fixed income activities by the U.S. Fed supporting the market by buying ETFs. Is there, Matt? Do you have any comments on that? If I'm allowed to ask the question, put me on the spot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think the Fed's use of uh, ETFs has definitely been an innovative approach to providing stability to the fixed income market in, in the U.S. And uh, from an ETF perspective, I, I definitely think it is a, a further proof point as to the efficiency of uh, the vehicle to get access to a diversified um, uh, exposure across the, the entire bond market. Uh, the Fed was able to both stabilize the ETF market, which is highly used by both uh, retail and institutions, uh, as well as the underlying bond market, essentially kind of killing two birds with one stone by using ETFs as a vehicle to provide that stability. The Fed has uh, provided monthly purchasing reports to show the ETFs that they're purchasing so that they are they are being very open as to what they're purchasing, how they're purchasing it. Uh, and it ranges from investment grade to high yield and basically across the curve, uh, really providing uh, full market stability. And thus far, the Fed has purchased uh, approximately about 82.5% uh, corporate bonds through the program via 16 different ETFs. So, you know, they're being provider and ETF agnostic. They are trying to support, uh, majority uh, of, of it is trying to support uh, corporates, and, it, and it's supposed to, to provide a safety net uh, for the underlying bond market while not providing any specific favoritism to any issuers. So allowing the managers of those ETFs uh, to put the bond to work across the market, and, and I think that's a very unique approach that, that the Fed took that has been thus far very successful. The program has been, been successful so far in terms of stabilizing the market and getting spreads to tighten. Uh, as we've seen April, May, and June, we've seen credit spreads come in, still wider than they were to start the year, but, but significantly tighter than they were in, in the wides of March. Uh, that being said, the Fed has also been purchasing significantly less than their maximum purchase rate which indicates actually that the Fed will only intervene in the market when it's needed uh, and that it is maintaining some dry powder in case our second wave fears do come to fruition. So I think for all those who, who are worried about second wave fears, what's going to happen in the fall? Are we going to see another drop? Or are we going to see another historic volatility drop like we saw in March? I think this should provide at least some uh, sense of comfort that you know the Fed is boosting the market, providing that sort of safety net, but they're doing so much less than than they have the ability to. So if the market does turn, they have the mechanism in place 
to intervene to provide that safety net. This doesn't mean that the market won't go down, but I do think that it does provide that um, that cushion that we didn't have in March. So I think that's something that, that can be looked at very constructively. And the fact that the Fed is using ETFs, again, is just, is just a, another proof point for um, the investment vehicle of choice for both retail and the largest of institutions, if you want to call that the Fed. All right. Thanks, Matt. And thanks, Chris, for joining in on the questioning side of things. Just one last check if there's anything else on the line. Okay, not hearing anything. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and listening in on uh, this conversation. And of course, thank you to Matt and Chris uh, for your insights your ideas, your trade opportunities, and as well for, for pieces of this conversation that we can bring back to our own conversations over the rest of the week. So with that, I'd like to thank everyone once again for joining us. Be safe, be well, and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you to Mark Race, Chris Heeks, and Matt Montemuro for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we heard a valuable reminder on the role ETFs play in supporting market liquidity. We also heard about the breadth of ETFs available to advisors from broad beta solutions like ZSP and ZCN to satellite pieces such as ZEB and ZWB. For more information about the ETFs discussed in this podcast, please see the episode notes below, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or simply visit BMOETFs.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we encourage you to subscribe. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed in future episodes, please send them to Andrew Vachon, A-N-D-R-E-W dot V-A-C-H-O-N at BMO.com. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio manager represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment tax or legal advice to any party. Investment should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statements that necessarily depend on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.